Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I'll be reading from verse 51 to 56. Luke 9. Let's give attention to God's Word. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for them, for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, desperately ask, that you by your Spirit would transform us, would do that humbling work in our hearts, that we would be a people who would learn this gospel rhythm of repentance and believing, repenting and believing, and believing more deeply in Jesus who does change us from glory to glory. May your glory be manifest, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. I have a confession to make. When I was at seminary here in Jackson, 1987, or maybe it happened in 1988, I was listening to a radio report uh, in my car, and it was a report from Operation Rescue. You know, at the time of leading pro-life Christian activist organization. And they were reporting on a protest in front of an abortion clinic. But what caught my attention in that report was that there were other groups present um, that were vehemently opposed to the pro-lifers there. And the microphone that was on was picked up what they were saying, what they were uttering and shouting. And you, I could hear the filth that they were venting, the anger, um, the horrific things that they were saying with rage against the pro-lifers. And I remember my response. I was all alone in my car, and I said, God, destroy these people. Execute your judgment. These people support the murder of, of abortion, support the abortion of babies. They dishonor and insult you. Lord, consign them to hell. When those words left my mouth, I asked God, was that right? Did I honor you? How would you have responded? Okay, I'm in seminary. Maybe there's some grace for me. <laughs> but let's broaden the question. Here you are, you're at the beginning of a, the missions festival, and you're thinking, okay, God, maybe you want me to go and proclaim the gospel to my neighbor and have a conversation that I've, I've been putting off for a long time. And, and, but what happens when you have that conversation and then the person heaps scorn on you? And they ridicule you. What happens when you want to reach into the community and demonstrate the love of Christ, and yet, you know, you get rejected for living in line with the gospel? What's 
your response going to be? Will it be a gracious response? Will it be one of anger and judgmentalism? You see, I think years ago, my response was filled with unrighteous anger and sinful judgmentalism. Now, don't get me wrong. We ought to be angry with sin, but I do believe I crossed the line. In the passage that we read, Jesus and the disciples are rejected by an entire Samaritan village. And how did the disciples respond? Well, they offer some severe judgment. So what Jesus does is uses this event to teach and rebuke them. Why? Because these are the ones who are going to be sent out in his name. These are his ambassadors. These are the ones who are participating in the gospel fellowship and in the mission festival, if you will. And if they are going to represent him well, if they are going to take this precious gospel of grace, then they have to recognize something that's so hard for me to recognize, is that, yes, I am a redeemed sinner, but I'm a redeemed sinner who sometimes struggles with judgmentalism. And I think that as we begin, and you begin the Missions Festival, it's an opportunity to take stock and pray, oh God, use me, but may it be out of a broken and contrite heart, not with judgmentalism. And so I think we need to recognize it on one hand. On the other hand, I think we're called to rest. To rest in Jesus' judgment-bearing work for us. And I'll explain that. Let's consider this um, passage under three headings. The rivalry that prompts judgmentalism, the reasons that lead to vindictiveness, and thirdly, the right judgment that produces a gracious response. So first of all, the rivalry that prompts judgmentalism. You know that in this text, Jesus is up in the north, and he's traveling from Galilee. He wants to go down to the south uh, to Jerusalem, and what he does, he goes through Samaria, like, unlike other Jews who would bypass Samaria because they wouldn't want to sully or touch this unclean soil that the Samaritans lived in. Jesus goes right intentionally through it, despite the bitter rivalry that existed between the Jews and Samaritans. And you know something of that rivalry. You know, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as racial half-breeds because they had intermarried with foreigners who occupied their land after being conquered by the Assyrians. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. So ethnically, the Samaritans were not pure Jews, and religiously, they were corrupt. The Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage based solely on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the other books of the Hebrew Bible as canonical. And... In addition, the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's where they focused their worship. And the relationship with the Jews and Samaritans grew worse when the Jews destroyed that temple. So you keep that in mind as Jesus is approaching this village. That tension is there. Now, we're not sure how many disciples were traveling with Jesus, at least 12, and so he sends a few ahead of him to make accommodation. So the messengers go on ahead of him. And and verse 53 tells us the response. 
The people would not receive him, Jesus, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the people of the town refused to extend, expend, expend hospitality to them, saying, essentially, you're not welcome here. Why? Well, I don't think you can ignore the racial tension, but the text tells us it was because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem which they considered an alternate place of worship. Why go and help this guy go and, you know, and facilitate that worship in a place we don't think is proper? So in reaction, now all this to get to this point, in reaction, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they respond in verse 54, Lord, do you want us to call, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Really? Did you just say that? Oh, seminary student, you just say that? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Think about what happened earlier in this chapter, in chapter 9 of Luke. Um, James and John, along with Peter, had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? And there... Along with Jesus, the transfigured Jesus in his glory, they see Elijah and Moses. And perhaps their response is prompted by their vision of Elijah as they recalled what he did in 2 Kings chapter 1. So let me quickly summarize that. 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah had been seriously injured. And he wanted to see if he would recover, but he didn't go and consult with God, but rather he sent messengers to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if he would recover. And on the way there, the messengers encountered the prophet Elijah, who tells them, you tell the king, he's going to die. And so the king finds out about it. Well, he's not very happy. So what does the king do? He sends out a captain with 50 soldiers to capture Elijah. So this captain with 50 soldiers, they find Elijah. He's, and they, he see him, they see him on the top of a hill. He says, man of God, come down from the top of the hill. And Elijah responds, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire fell from heaven and killed the men. Well, word got back to the king. And he sent another captain and another 50 men. The same thing happened. Fire fell from heaven and killed those 50 men. And again, the king found out, and he's not so bright, sent another captain and another 50 men. But this captain was smarter. He begged Elijah to spare him and his soldiers, and Elijah did. So if that's the background, you can imagine James and John, they're thinking, these people have dishonored you know, the Lord Jesus. They've rejected him. So Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and burn these people up? And you know, fire in the Bible is often associated with judgment as in what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. So they were asking, they were asking for the judgment of God to come upon these people, to burn their homes, to burn their property, to burn their marketplace. And I want to say, really? There's a family that we ministered to in, in El Paso, the Peña family, and, and we were helping them in the construction of their home as a church. And, and the reason was because their mobile home had burnt down, and they... Ex they you know, told me about that experience of being in that blaze of fire and the horror that they felt. And if you know of anyone who's gone through a house fire, 
you know it's horrific. And so you, in your best lucid, holiest of moments, you want to say no right-thinking human would ever want to set another person's house on fire. Yet this is what, not some marginalized disciple, but the inner disciples of Jesus, his intimate disciples, are asking to burn the whole village of men, women, boys, and girls. Something is deeply wrong with Jesus' disciples, with me, and with you. And that's why he came. It wasn't because there's some superficial reform that needed to be done, but something deep within our hearts. And it surfaces when this judgmentalism comes to the surface, in the foreground. And I think oftentimes before I go and minister, before I want to engage with my neighbor and serve the Lord in missions, I need to be honest and I need to start with confession. Lord, guard my heart that I might not act or say anything that would smack of judgmentalism. I know it's in me. And it's in me selectively. Not everybody gets my judgment, but certain people. Now, what leads us to this, us to do this and to act this way? Look, there are many reasons, but this takes us to the second point. Now, I'll identify two reasons that lead to vindictiveness. And there's a personal reason and a theological reason. First of all, the personal reason. I, I am fairly certain that James and John didn't immediately see their reaction as sinful, but as righteous and virtuous. It's a fruit of their theological privilege, really. I mean, they, they walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They saw what Jesus did. I mean, they were privileged disciples. And they would see themselves as men who were honoring uh, the Lord Jesus. But the moment they asked the tortious Samaritan city, I don't think it just simply betrayed uh, harshness, but I think something more lethal that's in you and me, and that is self-righteousness. Hi, my name is Tito. I'm self-righteous a lot of the time. I don't want you to think of me that way, but that's the truth. See, to call down judgment reveals a smug superiority to the Samaritans. Oh, sure, they could say, and we could say, there were men of conviction who could argue that what they wanted was sanctioned by certain parts of Scripture, but yet... They also acted contrary to other parts of Scripture of loving your neighbor or think of Jesus when he says, love your enemy and pray for them. They could have argued, well, they deserve it. Yes, it's true, they deserve it. But self-righteousness blinds us to the truth that we also deserve it, and much worse. See, self-righteousness blinds me to understand that I deserve the outpouring of God's wrath. But by grace, I have not received that. Pure mercy and compassion of God in Christ. My sins are just as offensive to God as their sins. But oftentimes, I would rather have my enemies suffer God's judgment than God's grace. Is there anybody ever wished that on, even for a moment? Theological reason. I think we see it in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is fulfilling at that moment what prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 50, verse 7. He set his face like a flint, unflinching. See, everything that Jesus did in life and his mission was according to the divine plan. And that time that was predetermined by God, he was determined now to finish. To finish the work for which he had come. The work that the Father had given him to do. And so he set his face for Jerusalem, the center of Israel's life and worship, where the temple was located, but also where many prophets had been killed. It was not a safe place for Jesus to go. See, in Jerusalem, he knew that he would be betrayed and ridiculed and rejected and despised and condemned and nailed and be lifted up on a cross. He knew that. But I wonder, as he was walking towards Jerusalem, did Jesus ever consider not going? It says, you know, his face like flint. But did he ever think, well, here are my two closest disciples, James and John, and they still don't get it. They still are acting foolishly. Did he ever think, you know, James and John, I'm just not going. You're just not worth it. No. No. He was determined. He was resolute. His face like flint to go there for James and John and Peter, for you and me, because he had to deal with the big issues deep in our heart, deep within us. Despite the horror of what awaited him to receive those beatings and be tortured and have his body pierced with nails and a spear, to take on himself and his body and his soul, our sins, to become sin for us, to experience the holy wrath of God, to be forsaken. He did not shrink back one bit. In the words of William Borden, Jesus had no reserve, no regret, no retreat. He knew and he wanted out of love for you and for me to save us, to justify us, to bring us into his fold. But here's my point. When we think about Jesus and his ministry, if we forget the whole Christ, the whole Christ and all his ministry, if we forget specifically this view of Christ, the suffering servant, if that the reality of our Savior does not penetrate our hearts. And then we just might just be too inclined to quickly judge people wrongly. When I forget that Jesus is a suffering servant, that the good news of life and acceptance by God comes through his being despised and his suffering in my place. When I forget that, oh, I am quick to judge others. And see, as you and I serve the Lord in our communities, in our neighbors, in our workplace, we seek to share the gospel both near and far. Our calling in this hostile world oftentimes is not to offer these wrongful judgments, but to take up our cross. To live in the shadow of the cross. Now, that's an invitation to missions that you just don't hear about. 
Come and serve the Lord in the mission field, in the shadow of the cross, or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What would it look like now when you have that impressed in your soul and someone scorns you and ridicules you, you know, this enemy of the gospel, but then you have infused inside of you this fellowship of his suffering. What does that do to how you respond now to that person? I'll tell you how Helen Roosevelt did it. You know, she was an English missionary uh, who served in the Congo in between 1953-73, and she was there during the uh, Civil War, and she endured horrific uh, things, imprisonment, torture. They did horrific things to her. The trauma that she experienced was so intense that she at one point said, if I had prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how she felt. And she recalled feeling that despair, she says, suddenly, though, I sense it was God. I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear a voice. I just knew with every ounce of my being that God was actually vitally there. He stretched out his arms to me. He surrounded me with his love, and he seemed to whisper to me, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're not beating you. They are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And she wrote, an enormous relief swept through me. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different because now it was with him, for him, in him that I was experiencing all this. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his sufferings. What if you and I, as we anticipate serving, spent some time confessing, repenting, saying, Lord, whatever comes, Grant me to respond under the shadow of the cross. And if need be, allow me the grace to share in some little way the edge of your suffering. You see, as I said this morning, this God who calls us into to himself guarantees that call that we will be with him in glory who views us with great delight, who loves us, who sees us as his treasured inheritance, this same Lord who indwells us by his Spirit, this same one who powerfully works in us, this great immeasurable power, sometimes will manifest that power in suffering. There's that paradox, right? We don't particularly care for that. But what would the church look like what gracious aroma there might be for the world to smell that grace of Christ. There is a judgment, however, that we do need to speak about. That leads into the third point, the right judgment that produces a gracious response. 
If you notice that after James and John asked Jesus the question, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them, that Jesus responds in verse 55, it says, but he turned and rebuked them. You know, he didn't rebuke the Samaritans for the rejection, but he rebukes the disciples. And some of you may notice in your Bibles, there might be a footnote or an additional note that adds something, another, another phrase uh, to verse 55. And you see it because it appears in other manuscripts. And it adds this, and he said, you do not know, so he's speaking to James and John, he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. See, he's saying, no, that's not the kind of spirit that ought to be in you, my beloved. No, not that kind of spirit. We aren't called to pronounce judgment on other people. No, judgment and vengeance belong to the Lord. He knows people's hearts. He knows who are his, his own people. So what are we called to do? Rather, we're point, we are called to point others to him who was judged in the place of sinners. Talk about judgment. There you go. Talk about Jesus who was judged in the place of sinners. And Jesus makes this clear later on in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. It says there, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And what Jesus is saying is that the fire of God's judgment and rejection would come down upon him. He would be baptized with the judgment of God at the cross. He would suffer the wrath and the hell that our self-righteousness and my judgmentalism and my unrighteous anger deserve. And that's what he's done for each one of us. See, when that judgment, the judgment of Jesus for us, for his people at the cross, when that is etched on our souls, then we just might be a bit more inclined to love our enemies and pray for them. Now, that would have been a different sort of response in 1987 to pray and to love them in that way. See, when that is etched on our souls, when we understand that I should have been judged, but God sent his son to be judged in my place. And then Romans 12, 21 makes a lot more sense. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Because you understand then, over your life is not this judgment, God waiting to pound on you and to crush you. No, why? Because he crushed his son in your place. And your son, his son, was judged for us. And so over our lives is his banner. His banner over me is love. Not under condemnation. I think of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. We see in that story that he was engaged with disputes with those in the synagogue, but because of false accusations and witnesses, he was seized and brought before the Jewish council. And when asked by the high priest concerning these accusations, he gave this lengthy defense centering on the dwelling place of God throughout Israel's history and how the Jewish leaders killed the prophets God had sent. And when the council heard this, you may recall, they were enraged. They grabbed him and they cast him out of the city. They judged him and they condemned him and they began to stone him. And you remember his response when they were stoning him. 
He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I want to say, where do you get that spirit? Where do you get that heart? When everything and the world we live in say, no, react and judge and divide and crush. And yet the gospel teaches us something so different. How does that happen? With Stephen, he had a heart-transforming vision of Jesus. Do you remember that? The crucified, risen, ascended Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, rather standing at the right hand of God, as if to say, I'm going to defend this one who belongs to me. This Jesus who was judged in his place, of this Jesus who took his sins upon himself so that it would not be held against him, of this Jesus who said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And so I ask myself and I ask you, is this the kind of spirit that's inside of you? To begin a missions festival and ask that question is a hard question to ask, but I think it's a necessary question. With what spirit will we engage in missions and love our neighbor and love the nations and love our Lord? Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33 that he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's the God. But he says, no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but you pray that the wicked will turn from his way and live. I need to learn that time and time again. Yolanda is a woman in the church, the Los Tierras Church where I was pastoring. She was married. Uh, Her husband was physically abusive, violent, emotionally, verbally abusive. It got so bad, um, it happened multiple times, but it got so bad that he was arrested, spent time in prison. But not too long after that, there was a divorce. The years passed, 20 years. Her husband's still alive, but barely. And so his ex-wife decided she was gonna go visit him in the nursing home because his health was poor. She goes and she reads the scriptures to him and he says to her, why are you reading that nonsense? And then she would pray for him And then she'd go home and she would call me and she would cry because she was so hurt. And I'd listen and I wanted to say to her, Yolanda, don't go back. Don't go back. And she went back and the same thing happened. And she went back again and again. That woman taught me something about the spirit of a servant engaged in missions. Willing to share in the sufferings of Christ. Oh, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. Go and talk about the Savior. Let's pray.
which you have done for us, Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit is simply too difficult to utter in words because our sin is deeper than we ever imagined. But your grace is greater. Your mercy is much, much more. As we sang earlier, and may it be, O Lord, that we would be a people who would understand the mercy that we have received and extend that same mercy, even though it would cost us. We do so because one day, all this present passing tribulation will fade, will fade in comparison to that glory that awaits us. And so grant us, Lord, by your Spirit, the desire and the heart and the Spirit to serve you well, for Jesus' sake. Amen.